0: All right, Ephesians chapter 4. We made it. We're here. Let's read verse 1 through 16. Then I'll explain where we're going. We're talking about God's calling for your life. Everyone seems to have a different way of defining God's calling for their life. Ephesians 4 lays it out pretty clearly. There's no way to get around it. You know what I mean? So you you can define God's calling for your life however you want. But if it doesn't meet the biblical definition of God's calling purpose, destiny for your life, whatever you want to Okay, however you want to label it, then then you're not going after the right calling, right purpose. So, let's get to it. Ephesians 4 verse 1 through 16. Let's read. I therefore, Paul writing from prison, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay? He's going to mention the calling the believers have been invited into. There's, a, there's an expectation on our life. I think that's a better way of saying this. When we think of calling, we should think of God's expect, expectations of me. What is the appropriate way of life? What is the purpose that he's designed me for? What is a worthy way to live that God is deserving of? Okay? Verse 2 says, With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, that's the idea of coming under the burden and enduring through someone else's difficulty or struggle or weakness or even offense, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, there's one body and there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith and one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions, which is the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Here's how he describes children, those who are tossed to and fro, easily swayed and thrown around by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine. They're easily deceived, right? They mindlessly believe everything they're told just because someone calls themselves a preacher, right? They're deceived by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Instead of being children, though, let's speak the truth in love we to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So those are the first 16 verses. We might get farther than that today, but I, I just want to focus on the 16 verses God has told me to get through today. Let's do it. Let's do it. All the way back to verse 1. The calling we're referring to here is going to be explained in chapter 4. When you hear a believer say, God has a calling for me. God has a destiny. God has a purpose for me. There's something God wants me to walk in. There's, a, there's an intended, you know, thing for me to fulfill with my life. They often mean um, how God intends to use them. And, and usually, not always, but usually what comes jammed into that idea is their career. That is the main idea behind a Christian's calling for a lot of people, not saying most people, but, but a lot of people I can, I've talked to and, and had conversation with. They, it's almost like what's synonymous with calling is my career, my job, the place God has put me in. That's the fullness of my calling is the occupation I'm in. Now let's see if, Paul defines calling in that way. I don't think he's going to. But just to show you, verse 1. I, therefore, and when you see the word therefore, you go, hmm, what is that therefore? Well, it's connecting chapter 3 and 4. Okay. Paul ends with saying that we need to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge to be filled with the fullness of God. And God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Okay? Uh, according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Okay? It's called vocation, if you didn't know. Uh, thank you. So, verse 20. Vocation, another way of saying occupation, whatever it is, your career, your job. So, verse 20 and 21 are going to lead right into chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called to. And you go, I don't see the idea, the two ideas and how they connect. Okay? Well, verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, Paul's saying, Live a life worthy of the calling. The end of chapter 3, though, he ended by saying, To God be glory in the church. Right? To God be glory in the church. To, um, and in Christ Jesus. So the, the glory aspect, right, where the church exists to glorify and make much of, magnify the name of God through our lives. We exist to image God and reflect his glory in the earth. Because of that truth, because of that assigned purpose for the church, live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've been called to. And you go, I don't understand the calling I've been called to. You got to read the first three chapters of Ephesians. But to sum it all up, God has called you into um, the inheritance of his son, the standing of Jesus before the father. Jesus makes you righteous and holy and blameless and adopted and forgiven and chosen and redeemed. And he brings you into um, a new way of life, a new identity that has a certain calling attached to it. When God reformats you and recreates you to be a new creation in Christ, there is a set of expectations that come with that identity. There's an appropriate way of life for that kind of a person. And so if God has brought the church together in Christ, the, the community of believers across the planet and across time, if he's brought us together in Christ to glorify his name, then the calling on our lives as believers is going to be that exact thing, to make much of, to glorify the name of Jesus in the earth. Now, how we do that, uh, Paul's going to explain in verse 2. Okay? But for now, just know there is a way to live that is worthy of what Christ has done for you. And there's a way you can live where you're not living worthy of what he's done for you. Like God is so infinitely worthy and deserving that there's a certain life, his glory, um, not demands, I don't think that's the right word, but you would expect for someone of that much glory. If he's that good to me, then you would expect me to respond in a certain way. And Paul will call this a manner that is worthy of the calling you've been called to. He's going to talk about how we were called to a certain set of things in verse 4 through 6. But look at verse 2. Look at how he describes what we have been called to. In other words, the life we should be living. More than a bunch of things to do, it seems to be more about the character of the person, which affects how we live. But I think it's safe to say that God is more concerned about who we are more than more than he is about where we are or where we find ourselves. It's more about who we are and, and how we are faithfully representing Jesus. So verse two, here's how you live a life that's worthy of the calling. Is God's calling for your life? Live with humility and gentleness. With patience. Bear with one another in love. There's an enduring kind of love that says, I'm not just going to love you when it's easy. I'm going to love brother and sister in Christ when it's difficult, when they wrong me, when there's offense, when there's issues to work through with them. I'm not going to leave them on their own so that they're on an island. I'm going to actually join them and carry the burden with them and bear with them. Now, the specific kind of bearing with each other has in mind a, a humble, gentle patience. Whatever kind of enduring love God's calling his people to, okay? Not only has Christ demonstrated that, but it requires patience. It requires humility where I shut down my pride and say, life is not all about me. I'm not the center of the universe. I don't live for me. I'm going to live for the good of others. And I'm going to think of myself appropriately, not have an inflated view of myself, right? And gentleness where I'm not rough and You know, um, aggressive and rude. There's there's a gentleness. I think this can be translated meekness. Um, A lowliness. Galatians 5.23 is linked here. Uh, It's the fruit of the spirit. Gentleness. I love that. So the kind of calling so far for the believer. I feel like what's God's calling for my life? So far, it's about who you are more than it is about where you are or what you're doing occupationally or vocationally it's more about who am i in this moment and how am i demonstrating and reflecting the character of of jesus in my life and am i even doing that with humility and gentleness and patience bear with one another in love we often think of our we often think of our calling uh, this is challenging. Let me just take a sip of tea before I, before I step on a bunch of toes. Y'all going to be very unhappy with me. We often think of our calling as if it's isolated from the rest of the church. Right? God has a calling for me. There's a purpose for me and my gifts and my hopes and dreams and my vision board and, and my experiences. And, and I'm going to play my part in the body and it's me. We often think of our calling as it's isolated from the rest of the body. What if, okay, what if your calling, your purpose is more about your relationship with the church more than it is about what you're doing isolated from the church? In other words, I don't think you can effectively live out your calling while lacking in community with the church, I don't think you can cut yourself off from the church and the community of believers and say, I just need, I just need God. It's just me and Jesus. I don't think you can effectively live out your calling and purpose while doing that. Biblically, it seems as though your purpose and your calling is fulfilled, not just in relationship with other believers, right? But by your connection to, uh, to believers, by your connection to the church, it's fulfilled. Not just the substance of your calling is found in relationship with believers, right? But my relationship with other believers is what moves me into and effectively accomplishes my calling, okay? So a lot of people think my calling is about my gifts. It's about my role and what I'm doing with the skills I have. Well, that is partially true. But it's not just about what you're doing with your gifts. Because I can be using my gifts or my skills outside of relationship with the church. And I'm still connected by the Spirit of God and we're bonded, right, through faith. But if you're focused on doing a bunch of things and using your gifts and, and living your dreams and accomplishing that vision board, right, and getting into your ideal career, if you're focused on a bunch of things, in isolation from the rest of the church, I don't believe you can effectively fulfill your calling because humility, gentleness, patience, enduring love, those four attributes necessitate relationship. Like they, they require me to be in relationship. If I, I can't demonstrate gentleness and humility and patience uh, without being in relationship with other believers. So the assumption here is when Paul says, look, live worthy of the calling on your life. We often think of what am I doing in private? And your private life matters. Your integrity matters. Your purity matters. Your honesty matters. Your diligence, your faithfulness, all of that matters. Your pursuit of God. But it's not just about what you're doing on your own. The calling Paul is referring to for believers is more about, if we can say that, that one is more than the other. It's more about what you're doing in relationship with other believers. Are you demonstrating humility? Are you growing in humility? Are you demonstrating and reflecting the gentleness of our God and the patience of our God? You find yourself willing to endure with people and love them through the issues and the offenses and the difficulties, or do you back off the minute someone offends you? And the minute you think, I think that was a subtle jab and an insult, I'm out. I'm done with you, Nancy. I don't know why Nancy is always the name. Okay, if you're Nancy, I love you. Okay, but the point is the character is, is more of what God is concerned with. Your calling is not so much about your your career. It's not so much about your skills and gifts. It's more about your character as you're doing those things as you're using your gifts, as you're, you know, developing your skills, as you're, you know, progressing in life and getting, you know, I don't know, married and having kids and getting a a house. And as you're progressing through life in that worldly kind of sense, who are you becoming? Who are you? Verse three says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So to capture the totality of our calling in one succinct statement. Here's what he says, ripped all the Nancys. He says, what I'm calling you to, what the Lord is calling you to as believers, not individually, collectively. We need to think of our calling as alongside the rest of believers. My calling complements yours. Yours complements mine. We're moving towards Jesus together. This is a collective thing. So when Paul writes Ephesians, he's not just addressing individuals. He's addressing the collective body in Ephesus, which is composed of individuals. So individuals need to play their role and step up. But this is about addressing the whole, the entire body. And he he sums up our calling by saying, be eager, not just willing, not just tolerating it, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, be eager, pursue what promotes unity in the spirit among the believers. Be a reason that the church is more unified. Your presence in your local church or in the global church, you you should be a reason the church is at peace and in more unity. Not, you shouldn't be a reason the church is more divided. And another, you know, uh, what's it called? denomination is created. You, you should be a reason that there's unity and peace. Now, what we've already established in the first three chapters is that spiritual unity and real peace is not the result of my efforts. It's the result of God's grace and what he's done in Christ. In other words, unity and peace come from what Christ has done. He makes us one in the Spirit. I don't get to change that or affect that or influence that. We are bonded by the Spirit of God inside of us who unites us in the work of Jesus through our faith. I don't get to change that or increase or decrease that. So when Paul says maintain the unity of the Spirit, right, what he's saying is the expression and the experience of that inward unity you have since you are bonded by the spirit live like you're one in the spirit. So God has made us like in Christ to be one new family, new humanity. We're one in the spirit. We don't always live like we're one in the spirit. We don't always live like we're one collective body complementing each other, playing our roles, benefiting one another. We don't live like that. So again, Paul is, getting us to understand that who we are should influence how we live. And when I live a life that's worthy of the calling on my life, I don't change who I am in the sight of God. And when I fail to meet the calling on my life, I don't change who I am in the sight of God. That stays intact. My identity and my position, that stays intact because it's based on Christ, Right? So my faith in Jesus is what makes me what I am. God graciously bestows upon me the identity that I have. My decision to maintain unity or not doesn't make me less one in the spirit with you or more united in the spirit with you. What Paul is saying is do what promotes that unity expressed in the church. Do what promotes that in an experiential kind of way. Like you're bonded in the spirit now go and live like it go and live like it in the bond of peace and chapter 2 is all about the peace the real inward soul level eternal peace christ has purchased for us he's made through his death and resurrection through his cross we now have peace with god and now if i have peace with god and you have peace with god through faith in jesus you and I can have peace with one another because we're bonded in the spirit. And there's a unique bond there and, a, and an experience of peace that God actually leaves up to the pursuit of his church. In other words, God goes, look, I have made peace available and accessible to the fullest extent. Come and experience the peace, not just with me, but with one another. Maintain the unity of the spirit. It is up to you. To pursue what I've made available. To access and reach out for what I have given you fully in Christ. Here's peace. Now promote it. Live it out. Do what, you know, creates more peace in the body. Don't be a reason that the church is divided. And don't be a thorn in the flesh of the church. You know what I mean? Be Be a blessing. Be a benefit. Be a gift to the church. So apparently to maintain unity, here's what Paul's pretty much saying. If you want to see unity happen, like real godly unity that shocks the world. If you want to see peace that flows from being right with God into the communities that you're a part of, if you want to see that you have to choose every individual that belongs to that church and the global church at large, each of you has a responsibility To pursue humility, to grow in gentleness, to grow in a patience and an enduring love that bears with one another, to actually desire to promote unity. This is not a passive position we take where it's like, well, I'm okay with unity if it happens. I'm cool. Let it happen, Lord. I can tolerate. No, God's saying, look, be eager to maintain it. Like, pursue it, want it, desire it, pray for it. Do what leads to unity. Be a reason that your church is stronger. Be a reason that those believers are are, are more unified. Be that reason by pursuing, not pride, humility. Not this rough aggression where it's like, I'm always right and i got to shut you down if you're wrong in the smallest way. Gentleness. Gentleness. And not this like, ugh. I'm done working with Nancy, right? She's just always off the walls, can't handle her. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. That assumes something to endure. That assumes a burden to bear. So if someone is carrying a burden, I don't run. I don't run from it. I run towards it and go, how can I lift this with you? How can I work with you in the midst of your weakness? How can I work with you to lift this struggle off a bit? How can I lift this for you? Now look at verse 4. He's going to reinforce his his calling for you to pursue unity. He's going to reinforce it by saying, look, God's already made way for this. You and I get to rest in it and pursue what he's made available and enjoy it in the process. What did Nancy do to you, LeBronster? I don't know. Subconsciously, there must have been a Nancy in my past that really rocked my world and, and I'd forever just have something against a Nancy. I probably don't. It's just a, a name that comes to mind. But verse 4 says, there is one body and there's one spirit. One body and one spirit. Just as you were called. So, now here we go. Paul is explaining the calling on your life. If you go, what is God's calling for me? Well, Let's first address what you have been called to and you are currently in. That will help me understand what he's calling me to in the future is what I've been invited and pulled into now. So we have been present tense called into one spirit, one body. Okay, that's the calling. I have been called to one hope that belongs to my call. So, when God invites and calls a person to come into fellowship with Him, what we forget is that you're being called into a family. You're being invited into a a spiritual family that God has made way for. You're not just coming into a relationship with God, you're coming into a relationship with His people. And you better be ready because it's not just me and God against the world. It's the church alongside God facing the world, right? So we collectively are one body. We're bonded by one spirit. This is what we're called to. God goes, look, I'm inviting you to come and be a part of the body of my son. And I'm empowering you by my one spirit. And then there's a hope attached to that call. There's a powerful hope that transcends this life and breaks through any kind of trial and any kind of turmoil you face, it just overrides that. It's a hope that you can't even fully fathom. It belongs to your call. So whatever God is asking of his people, okay? Whatever expectation God has of his church, whatever the standard is, it has to do with the singular hope that we have in christ in other words god has given me a bunch of promises that are yes and amen in jesus there's no way they're going to not be fulfilled these promises are unstoppable for those who are in christ god's promises will come to pass so there is hope attached to my salvation there's hope of a new world there's hope of freedom from sin completely there's hope that the devil and his demons will be done away with and darkness will be removed from God's creation. There's hope that I'll be resurrected to a new glorified body, right? There's hope that I'll be renewed and this flesh will be gone. This fleshly sinful nature will be done away with. There's, there's a bunch of hope that I'll reign with Christ, that I'll rule with him, right? That there'll be a new heavens and a new earth combined into one that God will dwell among his people. There's a hope that is appropriate to our call. God calls us to a reason to hope. He goes, look, I'm inviting you into a real hope. Like 1 Peter says, you're born again to a living hope. So God is not just calling you to go out and do stuff. He's inviting you to have such a profound hope in Jesus that it moves your life in the direction of what he's worthy of. So God goes, here's the life I'm worthy of, and I'm asking you to to live. Now, the hope I've called you into is going to propel you into that kind of life. In other words, it seems as though the fuel that keeps me living a life worthy of the gospel, the fuel that keeps me moving towards Jesus, is the hope that I have in him. And, you know, Hebrews 11 goes into what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. They're not exactly the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin, though. All right. So faith gives me a reason. Faith informs my hopes. I'll say that. What I believe in is going to influence what I'm hoping for. So if I believe in Christ and he gives me a bunch of promises, then I believe in what he said and I'm hoping, not like, I hope it happens. No, it's going to happen. And my hope is in the direction of his promises. So I'm going to live in the direction of what he's called me to. If I'm called to everything he's promised in the future, reign with Christ, glorified body, new heavens, new earth, you know, completely new resurrected self. If I'm called to that, I'm going to live in that direction. Everyone lives in the direction of their hopes, right? What you hope for, you're going you're gonna to live towards. I'm hoping for a new job. You're going to live in that direction. I'm hoping for more finances, hoping for freedom from this addiction. I'm going to do what promotes what I'm hoping for. I'm going to do what moves me towards that hope I'm clinging to. And so what Paul is emphasizing here is the calling on your life is rooted in a hope that transcends this world and can't be fully understood by humanity. You're called to that. That's part of our identity as believers, is that God has given me reason to hope. We've been called to one Lord, right? one king, one master, one ruler, one faith, one belief system. Our set of beliefs, our core essential doctrines are centered around Jesus. He is my faith. Right, he's the one I I have I believe in and trust in. So we have one faith in the same King, in the same Gospel, um, and we're going to talk about the unity of that faith in the coming verses. But there's one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh oh, uh oh, you know the people that love to say water baptism is required for salvation. You go, okay, buddy, you got to pick and choose. Spiritual baptism of the spirit or water baptism by man. Pick and choose because you can only have one apparently. Apparently there's one singular baptism that matters. If you can, if you can pick or choose, which one would you want? I want a man to baptize me in water or I want God to baptize me in his spirit. Which one? All I'm saying is Ephesians 4 emphasizes the spiritual baptism. There's no way to get around it. That's most important, is to be immersed into the Spirit of God. That's the baptism here. I'm I'm immersed into Christ. I'm I'm immersed into His death and resurrection. I participate in that, right? The Spirit of God fills me. I'm immersed into God Himself so that His presence dwells within me. And I become one with my Creator. That's the baptism here. That's cool. One God and one Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Interesting. Very interesting. So Paul, again, emphasizing, live a life worthy of what Christ has done. If Christ has done what you say he's done, there is an appropriate, reasonable way to live. But if someone saves your life, like they push you out of the way of a moving vehicle and they sacrifice themselves and they barely escape harm and they're fine, but they put themselves in harm's way to save you. You're going to respond a certain way. Thankfulness, gratitude. Here's some money. I got I to gotta invite you over to dinner. I want to do something for you. That's how we respond to God. There's a, there's a hope he's invited us into. There's a faith we're called to. There's a spirit he fills us with. Himself. The salvation we have is mind blowing. He brings us into that. There's a reasonable way to respond. There's one Lord. I should live like my life is governed by one King. Not my flesh and money and greed and culture, God. I should live like I belong to the one true living God who is over all things. Through all things, in all things. So, verse 6, you go, Why does Paul like motivate us to live a life worthy of the calling? Why does he motivate us by saying, You've been called to or called by the one true living God who is over all, through all, and in all? In other words, The way Paul describes the living God is very crucial and significant to what he's calling us to do. If you really have been saved, like adopted, forgiven, redeemed, purchased, loved, if you've been loved by the God who is over all things, and through all things, and in all things, like if he fills the universe because he can't be restricted spatially, if he transcends time and space, and he's immaterial, and he's beyond this, the constructs of this world, if you serve and belong to him, how do you think you should live? How do you think you should live? You should ask yourself, what does this good, good father who saved me, what does he expect of me? Because all he wants is what's best for you. All he desires. All he wants is what is good and most beneficial to you and what glorifies his name. God won't call you to something and command you to do something that is not good for you or the people around you. Everything God invites us into is good and perfect love. So I think what Paul is emphasizing here is the supremacy and the power of God. And if I see that a little more clearly, right, I'll be just a bit more motivated to pursue humility and gentleness and and patience and love and unity. Because Paul's not the one telling me to do this necessarily. It's ultimately God who is the authority that Paul appeals to. God's the one calling his church to rise above the ways of this world and the ways of the flesh, to rise up to the calling and like live a life that's worthy of what he's called us to. So a good reflective question is, are you living a life that is worthy of what Christ has done for you? Are you living a life that God is pleased with? I like every single second, every moment I'm perfect, but the majority of your life, is it pursuing what God calls a worthy life? Do you define a worthy life the way God does? The calling on your life, do you define it the way God does? It's based on who you are, who you are to people, who you are at work, who you are at the grocery store when you're impatient and you're... Running low on groceries and you barely have enough money to even get them. and It's, it's, it's your character wherever you find yourself. Are you reflecting Jesus? Now look at verse 7. Okay, we're still talking about the calling on our life. And I say our because this is more about the calling on the church. The believing body of Christ. And then the individual says, I'll do that. Or the individual says, nah. So verse 7, God is over all, through all, in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay. I do need a long straw because I get thirsty. Angel, you are correct. You guys could buy me the longest straw that exists on Amazon. Be great i can just sip on water the whole time so it says but grace was given mm-hmm because it seems like god is calling us to something that feels a bit impossible especially when you look back in history and you go dang I don't, I'm not really sure the church can rise to the occasion and do this. Historically, we haven't been able to. This challenge is pretty, pretty great, Lord. (laughs) Like, I want to say challenge accepted, but man, this is, is this even possible? Like, to live, to pursue unity, to live in the unity of the Spirit, to live in the bond of peace with other believers? Is it possible? And Paul's going to transition here to say, look, here's why it's possible. Like, essentially, at the core of what Paul's saying is, here's why you can do it. Here's why you can do it. Grace was given, thank you, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Whatever the grace here is, Paul's already talked about how he stewards the grace of God faithfully, right? He's a faithful manager or steward or servant of the grace that was entrusted to him. And the grace... was given him was the ability and, and the responsibility to minister the gospel to the world okay so verse eight here's the grace we're talking about that christ has given the church in other words god calls us to do something then he empowers us to do that god doesn't ask you to do something he won't empower you to do he enables you to do this is I can, the first example I can think of is within Genesis. When God creates humanity, he goes, go be fruitful and multiply. The ability to do that is found within the command. God graces them. It's framed up as a blessing. It says God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And to a lot of people, a command is not a blessing. It's a burden. Tell me what to do on the man. You don't tell me how to live. I'm a grown man. You know, God tells them what to do, though. And it's a blessing because it provides direction and clarity. And he's the one empowering them to do it. So here in verse one through six in Ephesians, when God calls us to unity and humility and love and gentleness and peace and to live as one, he's not calling us to do something that he won't enable us to do. Okay, Grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now here's the question we got to ask. What gift is Paul specifically referring to here? Verse 8, therefore it says, now Paul's about to quote Psalm 68, verse 18. That's what my cross-reference says. Therefore, so when Paul says, look, Grace has been given each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now he's going to prove that statement with Psalm 68. Okay. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And you go, what does that have to do with me? living a life that's worthy of the calling what does this have to do with christ giving gifts well it's right there when he ascended on high he led a host of captives that's conquering language right that's triumphal language he has won the victory he's triumphed over sin death the devil and you go how do you know this is jesus because paul's gonna make it about christ it's always been about jesus all the way back when david wrote psalm 68 If he's the author of Psalm 68, I'm not sure. Whoever the psalmist is, it was foreshadowing Jesus. And through his victory, he gives gifts to men. So when it says that he ascended, you know, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower regions of the earth? We already established that God is over all, right? Right? And if Psalm 68 is about God, He can't climb any higher. Correct? Is that correct? So that's the confusion here. For that Paul is, you know, clearing up. When you read verse six, you go, God's overall above all. He's as high as it gets. He's supremely chief above all things. He's <laughs> He's the only Creator. He's the only eternal, infinite, self-sufficient one. Then verse eight it says, when He ascended on high, and you go. When did God ascend? That that implies that he climbed higher than he previously was. That he climbed to a higher status or position. So he had to climb higher to give us gifts? What are these gifts? Why, Why did God have to climb? I thought he's already up there. And Paul's clarifying, well, before he ascended, the implication here is that first he descended. Right? God can't be any higher than he already is. So... The implication here is that he descended first into the lower regions, which is the earth. This is talking about not just the incarnation of Jesus, not just Christ becoming man and taking on human flesh and the word embodied in flesh coming down among us. This is talking about Jesus willingly laying down his life and being put into the earth. He died. He actually died. Clinically, medically dead. Romans were professional murderers. So he not only came into our world as an act of humility and took on human frailty and weakness and tiredness and hunger and thirst and temptation and dependence. He didn't only take on all that stuff and sickness, he chose to take on the ultimate form of death and allowed himself to be hung on a cross. And allowed nails to be driven through his wrists and his ankles. And he stayed there. He stayed there. Until it was finished. And then he died. And he was put into the belly of the earth. Like Jonah was put into the belly of of the whale. That's why Jesus says, look, here's the sign I'll give you. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the, the fish three days, three nights, so will the son of man go into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. So, um, or three days. The point is before Jesus ascends first, he descends. Now watch. Apparently the gift of God's grace depends on Christ descending in order to ascend. In other words, whatever gifts Jesus intends to give his church these gifts of grace that enable us to be unified. He is not able. I think we can safely say that legally he can't dispense those gifts to his people until he first descends into our world to handle our sin, to handle the law, to handle our death and our penalty and our separation, and then conquer death in our place. He can't legally give those gifts until he's dealt with our issues. So what Christ does, he goes, okay, I'm going to give gifts, triumphant, victorious gifts of my ultimate victory over sin, death, and the devil. But first, I got to come down among them to be one of them, to represent them before the Father. And then what Jesus does is he lives the perfect life we never could. He fulfills the law that we fall short of. He pays for our sin with his precious blood. He dies our death. He satisfies the penalty for our crime. And then he dies and he resurrects three days later. Then by conquering sin and death and the devil and all spiritual forces that oppressed humanity. By doing that on our behalf, he conquers victoriously, which brings about a ton of gifts and rewards that he gives us access to. Now, verse 10 says, he who descended into the earth through the incarnation, through his death, is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens in order to fill all things. I love that Paul is in like three different ways telling us Jesus is God in the flesh. Psalm 68, it's about Yahweh, but it's about Jesus. And you're like, So which one? He's like both. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He really is God, the son. Okay. Another way Paul's, I mean, clearly telling us is that, look, God's the one giving gifts to men here, right? And you're like, yeah, Jesus is the one. Actually, this is about giving gifts to his people. You know, God is the one who is overall above all, right? Well, Jesus came into our world to ascend far above all the heavens in order to fill all things. Like, in other words, he has the status of Yahweh. When, when Jesus, let's just think about it real quick, okay? I gotta, I gotta go down this. God does not attain a status he didn't already have. By coming into our world, dying and resurrecting and ascending to the right hand of the Father, Jesus doesn't attain a status that he lacked as God. What he does is he attains a status that we lacked. That's why he has to come as a human being, so that as our human representative, he can extend to us the bounty of his victory, the rewards of his triumph. He extends that to us by ascending as one of us above. He ascends above all the spiritual forces that once held us captive. So since we couldn't break ourselves out of the prison cell of sin, since we couldn't break ourselves out of the penalty and the the punishment we deserve, what Christ does is he comes into our prison cell and breaks us out from the inside. He goes, I'm going to ascend above all the things that you were conquered by. And Jesus goes, I've conquered them so you can be seated with me in heavenly places. And then he goes even farther and he goes, I'm going to fill you with my spirit and I'm going to give you gifts of my grace. Now the question is if these gifts are based on his victory, if these gifts of his grace depend on Christ conquering our enemies, then what are these gifts? What exactly are these gifts that enable us to walk in the calling God has called us to? Now, in other words, In other words, Paul is linking the death and resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Jesus. He's linking the gospel to our ability to fulfill our calling. In other words, our calling and the gospel go hand in hand. Okay? So what Christ has done gives me direction for my life, gives me the ability to fulfill the purpose on my life, right? He empowers me. He gives me direction. He makes way for it. And... He gives me the gifts necessary to effectively fulfill the calling in the way God has personally asked me to. So all of us are going to fulfill the same calling, but we're going to do it in different ways, right? There's there's a universal purpose for all of humanity that God says, look, just bear my image, grow into the image of Jesus, reflect my image and multiply my image of the earth in the earth. We're going to do that differently with different gifts, different skills, different problems, different experiences, different relationships. We're going to do it differently. So how does God equip us through the victory of Jesus? How does he equip us to fulfill the calling on our life? Well, look at what he gives. He gave the apostles. Now, right here is lowercase apostle. Just to be clear, just to be clear, um, I wanted to see if there's anywhere, maybe the translations will differ, okay? What I will say is I don't believe Ephesians 4, 11 is only talking about the 12, you know, those who personally follow Jesus and were commissioned by him to go and lay the foundation of the church let's look this up let's verify this okay because there is another usage of apostle and in our modern day understanding the best way to think of apostleship since no one meets the qualifications to be a capital a apostle anymore right since no one meets the qualifications to be a capital a because you didn't see him at as you know uh, after his resurrection, uh, you weren't there following him and hearing his voice being personally taught by Jesus face-to-face, like Paul in the twelve. There's other qualifications I think Peter gives in Acts when they're choosing who will replace Judas, right? So later, Carlos, thanks for joining. Sorry you have to go, man. So I think in our modern-day language, a better just word to use for lowercase a apostle is a missionary, one who is sent out to establish churches, to plant churches, to establish leadership, to bring structure, um, to you know appoint eldership and and all of that to get a church off the ground. It's one who is commissioned, sent out, usually to plant, to start new things. So he who, verse eleven. Doo, doo, doo. No matter what, an apostle always translated, it's going to be a sent out one, a messenger, a delegate, an envoy, right? One sent to represent another. Um, here, I don't think it's referring to just the 12. Here's what we can say. I don't have time to dig through all these different verses. And the apostles returned. Okay. What I will say is depending on the translation you use, uh, some of the translators in each version will will sometimes like give an indication of who, what kind of apostles are being referred to here. Um, Capital A Apostle or like just a sent out missionary. Um, Here's what I'm going to say. No matter what, the apostles commissioned by Jesus personally are gifts of God to the church. To lay the foundation to build the church to establish you know the church in its infancy the apostles capital a the 12 are sent out to to be the guiding force and the authority to, to who carry the authority of god the, the authority behind the church in those days lowercase a apostles are missionaries people who are sent out and have this unique gifting to get things off the ground and start things and they're usually initiators Usually, people who um, uh, can bring structure and order and a creative, creatively minded. But I don't want to spend too much time on that. The, the point is, the gifts God is giving are the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, um, in other words, in verse 11 these different positions in the church, these different roles that people play, suspense is killing you, right? Are designed to equip the church. We, as human beings, are quick to, we're easily impressed by like, great influence great power great authority um great knowledge and wisdom we're easily impressed by like these high positions in the world that's a good way to say it so within the church it's easy to be impressed and like almost worship these positions we're like you're an apostle you're a shepherd you're a prophet you're an evangelist you're a teacher Woo! You must have an extra degree of God's favor on your life. And I think what Paul is saying here is, well, these are actually just gifts for your benefit. You don't worship the gifts. You're not impressed with the gifts necessarily. You're impressed with the one who gave those gifts. And you're like, thank you so much. Like, you're so wise for giving this. You're so powerful, God, for equipping people to be prophets and evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers, and apostles, Christ gave these to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So when it comes to our calling and our ability to live out our purpose, God goes, I'm going to enable you and equip you with these different people in the church who will, you know, equip you through their teaching, through their training, through their development." Through their discipleship, people like teachers and shepherds and evangelists and prophets, they are sent to equip the church. So let me tell you something. If you are gifted by God, like right now in the church, to be a prophet, a missionary apostle sent out one, if you're gifted to be an evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, and you're not building up or equipping the saints for the work of ministry. You're not actually doing your job. You're not actually being effective. All I'm saying is God assigns a purpose to his gifts. God gives with intention, intentional purpose. God doesn't accidentally be like, look at that, an apostle. You know what? Enjoy. Think of it as a gift from me to you. God's strategic, and he's very intentional behind what he does. So when God gives the gifts that are these roles to the church he gives with a purpose that they would equip the saints so when god wants to equip his people he doesn't do so uh individually on his own without the without the use of any other humans he actually raises up certain people he raises up certain believers to have certain gifts certain functions certain roles and then he commissions those people to go out and equip the other saints for the work of ministry. So your ability to fulfill your calling is empowered by God, not just by his spirit, not just by his truth, not just by his presence, but by the people who he's expecting you to be in community with. You see what I'm talking about how like our calling in life, it does relate to and is affected by being in community with other believers. Like I, I apparently can't experience the fullness of my calling without being in relationship with other believers. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying God can't effectively use you or he can't fulfill your calling without other believers being in your life. What I am saying is God has designed it this way. He's designed it in such a way where he's like, here's the calling I have for you. I've ordained that you will only fulfill that calling when you're in relationship with a local church, when you're in relationship with my body, when when you're in fellowship with other believers. That's how I'm going to equip you to fulfill your calling. And you go, God, but you can do it another way. And God's going, but I've done it this way. I've equipped people to equip you. And if you're not under their leadership, if you're not in community with them, if you're not in relationship with people who are supposed to equip you, you're missing and out and lacking a lot. A lot. So you need to find some kind of community. A Bible study. A small gathering in a home. An online study. This is why we have our Zoom prayer room calls after every Bible study on the weekdays. Every weekday, Monday through Friday, at 1130 in about 25 minutes, we jump on a Zoom call And we pray with one another and we encourage one another and we equip one another and we talk through and process a life together. That's why we do this. Because the more you gather and the more believers you're around, like the more equipping and the more training you're going to get. And again, I'm not restricting God to the people who play these roles in the church. I'm not saying, well, God can only work through these people he's designed it that way he's chosen to do it like this you can push back against it or you can actually listen and submit to his method and say you know what lord i need to find a church where we have shepherds and teachers and evangelists and prophets and apostles and people who are playing their role to equip the saints let me tell you this again i say it as lovingly as i can if you call yourself an apostle prophet evangelist shepherd teacher and you are not equipping the saints for the work of ministry you're failing you're failing at your job you're not gifted with those abilities and that position to do anything other than equipping the saints for the work of ministry now how you do that that's going to be different you might do it online You might do it in person. You might do it periodically. You might do it through small videos. Are you equipping people with the gifts God has given you? And with, you know, the role God has called you to play. Now look at how Paul describes ministry. When you and I think of ministry, watch. The first thing that often comes to mind is reaching the lost okay this is usually what we think of when when we say we need more ministers we need people to step up and get in the ministry we think oh reaching the lost preaching the gospel and i'm not saying ministry is not that but i am saying ministry is not restricted to that watch paul defines ministry as building up The body of Christ. Do you see that? Now, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, these gifts of God that Christ has empowered and given to the church through his death and resurrection, these gifts, these different roles, they exist to equip and to train up believers. For what though? For what? They're equipping the saints to build up the body. In other words, it's the church's job to build up the body. Through the grace of God, through the power of God, through the word of God, I'm not saying without God on their own, I'm saying by God's enablement, the church is called to build itself up. And you become more effective at that. When you're trained up and equipped by the people God has given to do that. Teachers and apostles and shepherds and evangelists and all these people, these these roles, these gifts, aren't just equipping saints to go out and, and share the gospel. That's not all it's about. It's about strengthening and building the body. And apparently, the assumption here is, me as a believer, I am called to build up the church With the gifts God has given me, but I need to be equipped to do it effectively. You're not going to accidentally build up the body of Christ. You need to be trained up to do that. To promote unity, to love the church, to strengthen the bride. You know, you need to be built up to do that and equipped. And God has provided the necessary, you know, training force for you. He goes, look, here you go. I hope you'll actually use this training and build the church. Now look at this verse 13. Here's the question at hand. How long does the church need to be edified or built up? How long should we expect the church to need growth and need development and progress? In a thousand years, will it be done? Well, let's let Paul answer that in verse 13. Now again, this is your calling to build up the body of Christ, promote unity, love one another, serve and benefit each other with your gifts. Demonstrate humility, live humbly, gently, patiently, bearing with one another. This is your calling. And I know this frustrates a lot of people because they're like, ah, what about the platform? What about the actual like It's the stage. What about the ministry? What about the individual organization I'm going to start? And I'm like, bro, God is defining calling how he wants to define it. God's defining calling about where or who, not where, who who you are, who you are, who you are, who you are. So here's, here's the, the, the finish line where we will no longer need to be built up and strengthened and edified and encouraged and and developed. Here's the finish line. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, There seems to be a few ways to define this deadline or this finish line. When the church will have no more need to grow, when, number one, we're perfectly united in the faith. When, number two, we have full knowledge of Jesus. When, number three, we've reached perfect maturity, the fullness of Jesus. I don't know about you, but for me, those three things don't happen this side of heaven as long as the sinful nature exists to disrupt this. These three things, I don't have perfect knowledge of Jesus. I don't have perfect maturity. I don't have perfect unity with other believers until Jesus comes back and we're resurrected to new glorified bodies and we're actually in this and i see him fully and i know him fully and i'm in perfect unity with my brothers and sisters and i've reached perfect maturity the point is verse 13 you could sum it up like this you still need to grow until you're perfectly like christ that's the bottom line so let's back it up if jesus marks the finish line if jesus marks the end for the need of teachers and shepherds and evangelists and prophets and apostles then here's the the clear implication until i am perfectly like christ and the church is perfectly like jesus we need apostles we need prophets we need evangelists we need shepherds and we need teachers to equip the saints to become more and more like christ and i only mention this because there are some people who think these sign gifts like prophecy and and you know tongues and stuff like that and these roles like prophets and and apostles at least lowercase a apostles like they're no longer necessary some people think that they think certain gifts and positions in the church ceased and they stopped And there's no clear biblical indication of that. But here, it seems as though, no, these these positions are in, like, active. They're active until we're all perfectly like Jesus. Now, the apostles, evangelists, all these different roles are equipping us to become more and more like Jesus and we're maturing through the the equipping God brings so that right what this is what maturity looks like the fullness of Christ being more and more filled with Jesus looks like not being children not being tossed to and fro by the waves and and not being easily carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes what's the point here There are some believers who are easily deceived. They're easily swayed by any kind of teaching that comes from someone who claims to be a a messenger of God. They believe everything they hear from the man of God. They're easily swayed by deception. They're easily swayed by human doctrine. They don't think for themselves. They don't have a, a strong enough foundation and a strong enough filter to actually recognize deception. They don't know the truth well enough to have a standard by which to measure everything they're listening, and hearing, and watching, and and experiencing. They don't have a standard. So maturity here has to do with how easily are you deceived. Now maturity is not only indicated by how easily you are deceived. But in this context, the kind of maturity Paul has in mind that the church needs to grow up in and progress and develop in is that we would not be easily swayed by human deception. That we would not be easily swayed by deceitful schemes. The implication there is that people are scheming, the enemy is scheming to deceive the church. And the more mature you are, the more like Jesus you are, the more equipped you are, well, the harder it is to deceive you. But if you're easily swayed and you're like, "Oh, that sounds nice." There goes all the knowledge I've learned out the window. If that's you, and you're just easily moved by any, you know, um, charismatic speaker who claims to be a pastor and you're like, everything they say is true. If you don't discern... And evaluate and test what you're listening to. That's a sign of immaturity. It is. Point blank period. Immaturity is being easily deceived. It's gullible. My children are gullible. When they grow up, I pray to God they're not gullible anymore. But children are known for, their, for how gullible they are. Children are known by how, easy, by how um, you know, easily convinced they are. And maturity here, spiritually, being more like Jesus, equipping the church, loving believers, and and building up the body, it has to do with how well you know Christ. You are only effective when you know Jesus personally. You're only as effective to the rest of the body to the degree that you know Christ personally. You're not of much help or of much use regardless of how gifted you are or how many followers you have or how much status you have in the world. You're not a help to the church if you don't know Christ well, if you're not growing in the knowledge of him. Now, there are newer believers who are like, what about me? I'm screwed. No, the point is, are you growing in the knowledge of Jesus? Are you pursuing his presence? Do you want to know him? And then from that, you become more effective at building the church. But if you don't know him, there goes your effectiveness out the window. Because you're easily deceived, easily swayed, easily convinced, you're gullible, you don't even know what to stand on. So you don't even know how to equip the church with the truth because you don't know the truth. Now look at, this is your calling, this is your calling. Look at verse 15. Paul's going to contrast childlike immaturity and being gullible and easily deceived, he's going to contrast that with verse 15. In other words, here's the polar opposite of childlike immaturity and gullibility. Rather, instead of being deceived, speaking the truth in love, we are to be growing up in every way into Jesus, who is the head into Christ growth is a sign of maturity not just because you've arrived in a new dimension of knowledge or a new dimension of transformation not just because you're farther now but the very idea of progress the very idea of maturity and transformation those are indications that you are mature and you go, I'm not mature. I haven't reached a certain point yet. Maturity is more about a mentality. Some of y'all are like, I don't see that in scripture. Now watch. Maturity is more about a mentality more than a position you achieve or a place you attain or get to watch biblically the way you think is an indication of maturity or lack of maturity biblically philippians 3 15 it says on well, verse 14 let me back it up because paul's gonna say demonstrate and imitate what i'm doing He goes, i press on toward the goal For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice how calling and maturity seem to be two ideas that are combined. Not just here, but in Ephesians 4. Calling and maturity, okay? God has called you to a way of thinking. To a way of evaluating the world. To a way of seeing life. And seeing your own growth. See, if you see your own growth as a reason to stop, that's an indication you're not as mature as you think. But if you see growth as an indication that, wow, I have made some progress and I still see the gap between where I want to be and where I am, then you're evaluating your growth properly. Okay, there is an improper way to evaluate growth. I don't want to go on that tangent. The point here is Paul saying, look, I don't consider myself to be perfect. I'm pressing on towards Jesus, the resurrection, like I'm moving towards that. I'm pressing on toward the upward call of God. Let those of us who are mature, okay, watch. Think like this. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you too. Only let us be honest or hold true to what we've obtained. In other words, have an honest evaluation and an accurate view of your own maturity and growth and where you've come don't just look at where you've come from right look at where you still need to go and let that gap not condemn you and shame you and discourage you let that gap motivate you and drive you to jesus because there's always more jesus in his word is bottomless fries man you can't get enough you never reach the full you know depth and understanding of what God is really saying in any given passage or 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 verse or or theological idea that you can never fully fully comprehend and understand every dimension of that idea of scripture. So the point here is, look, maturity happens when believers choose to wield the truth in a loving way that is for the benefit of people and not for their own selfish ambition. Can you abuse the truth in a way that promotes self and burdens people? Yes, you can use the truth in a way that's oppressive. We've all seen that throughout history. The point here is how you wield the truth matters and how you think about your own maturity and growth and progress matters just as much. Speaking the truth in love, grow up into Christ. The point is if we can sum up what's god's calling for my life it's that you would be moving towards jesus and be a reason that someone else is closer to jesus too it's not just about my isolated growth it's about my transformation actually positively impacting the people around me so that they're moving towards jesus too and if my growth and my transformation and maturity is leaving people unaffected then you really got to ask yourself am i really where i think i am am i really as mature as i think i am or do i have an inflated ego about my own understanding and wisdom and and maturity and i'm not where i think i am you got to be really reflective and you got to take time to meditate on where you are okay because again how you think about where you are is going to influence what you do with what you think you know, okay? And if you wield the truth in an oppressive way that burdens people, like the Pharisees did, and you're, 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 you're obstructing their growth, and you're exalting yourself in the process, you're misrepresenting Jesus, you're, you're opposing God's calling for your life, right? And you're in the process bringing down the church. So, what we need to do is speak the truth, amen, in love. You can't have truth without love. You can't have love without truth. The two are two sides of the same coin. And when the body of Christ is equipped to know the truth, so that they're capable of speaking the truth to one another in love, growth happens. Not isolated growth where it's me and God against the world, but growth where I'm alongside other believers growing up into Jesus with them. So growth and transformation has to be a collective experience. It can't be an individualistic, me-centered thing where it's about how far I am and how far I got to go. I do need to have an honest evaluation about where I personally am, but that should not isolate me from the rest of the church. Speak the truth in love. Don't be easily swayed by philosophical ideas and smooth tongues and people who have, you know, the influence and the following and the status. Don't be easily swayed. Don't be gullible, but know the truth, be equipped by the truth and go and use that truth to build up the church and help people become more like Jesus in humility, in patience, in love in kindness, in gentleness, in boldness, in whatever capacity God desires to use you, right? Play your role. Your calling is to build up the body of Christ while reaching out into the world and giving them a proper, accurate image of who your God is. And if the church is dysfunctional, if the church is all messed up and discombobulated You're giving the world a very improper view of who your God is. So really your effectiveness to evangelize starts with what you're doing in house and your church collectively. So watch, we grow up into Jesus. What's the standard of growth? What's the measurement of my progress? Jesus, like the, the perfect resurrected human, the one who is perfect humanity and who invites me to walk in that same way of love that benefits humanity. He's my standard and my model. So I should be growing up to and into Jesus, who is the head. Now watch as Paul describes Jesus as the head. Okay, now you got to ask yourself, in this moment, the point Paul is making Why does he emphasize this dimension of Jesus to drive home his point? What about Jesus being the head of the body reinforces the idea that we need to grow up into the truth, into Jesus, who is the truth, according to John 14. Watch. Jesus is the one from whom the whole body joined and held together. Who holds the body together? Well, We're unified by the Spirit, and Jesus makes way for that unity and peace, and he holds us together, right? And by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I don't know if you caught that, but the reason Jesus here is referred to as the head As the operation center for the body. As the command center that gives the directions to the rest of the body parts. The reason Jesus is referred to as the head. Is because we're getting our instructions and our commands from him. Okay. And apparently there's a way in which the body can appropriately function. And inappropriately function. And when each part is working properly. Watch. Here's how you know you're playing your role effectively and you're actually playing your part of the body properly. When you are making the body grow and causing the body of Christ, the believers across time and space to build themselves up in love. I'm not just making you closer to Jesus. I want my presence in your life to motivate you to build up other believers. It's a chain effect. This is discipleship. This is discipleship. Is when we gather, I want to be a reason we're edified and strengthened so that you are a reason when you get around other believers that they're strengthened and edified. You see it? So Jesus is the standard, the operation center. He's, he's the central focus of this thing. He is the truth. He is the one who holds us together. He is the, the one giving us our battle commands. He's the one enabling our efforts to actually produce spiritual growth your efforts without his blessing produce nothing of value so the unity of the faith humility god has gifted us as the church with shepherds and teachers and prophets and apostles and evangelists to equip us to be effective for each other in other words the goal your calling is to build up the church and image god well in the earth to the unbelievers to believers because john 17 talks about how the unique unity of the church is supposed to demonstrate uh, an attribute of god that just convinces unbelievers of god's existence i'm not saying god's people should be convinced only by that or that's the only method but John 17 makes it clear that our unity as the church, our, our oneness and our love and our service for one another is going to be a reason for someone to believe in, in the God we serve. Now, here's what I'll end with. We're building ourselves up in love. So if you're supposedly playing your role and using your gifts, but no one's being strengthened or built up in love, you really got to ask yourself, am I really fulfilling God's calling for my life, which is to benefit humanity by knowing him and making him known? Am I really benefiting humanity? Because I'm the best version of me, and the most benefit to you when I am most like Jesus, who is the perfect representation of what humanity has always you know supposed to have been he's the image he's what adam and Eve failed to be he restores us back to the image so we can walk in the purpose he's made way for us um, to accomplish and your calling is more about your relation to the body and other people about who you are It's about how well you know Jesus and how well you make him known. How effectively and how honorably you represent him. But I I could probably go on much longer. I'm going to choose not to. I don't just start rambling. What I will say is this. In five minutes. Okay. Six minutes. Add six minutes to your clock. In six minutes we're jumping on a Zoom prayer room call. So we're going to pray with one another and just seek the Lord. Um, intently and process these things together and ask questions and um, hopefully get somewhere and fellowship if you want to join that the zoom link is in the youtube description below or on facebook in the youtube description below uh, the password is jesus and if you're on tiktok click my profile picture go to my profile click the link and then you'll see the zoom link click that and then uh, the password is jesus in five minutes okay And for those of you that don't know, this is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids. So if you want to get to know Above Reproach Ministry a little more, you can visit our website at AboveReproachMinistry.com where you can find our podcast, you can find our YouTube channel, you can find my book, you can find our free Bible study program, uh, you can find our Discord community, our Zoom links, Instagram. You can hit up all those things, okay? And if you want to give to this ministry because you've Benefited and been encouraged, man. You can invest into what God is doing here and help me support my family. Help me keep this content free to everyone across the planet, whether it's the trainings, or the curriculums, the resources, uh, the studies, the videos. I want this all to be free to everyone on the planet. But my family got to eat, right? So if you want to invest into this ministry financially, you can give one time through Cash App, through PayPal, through Venmo. Uh, you can give on a monthly basis through Patreon. And on Patreon, you get exclusive access to my teaching material. You get my sermon notes. Um, You get discount codes on our church merch here. What, what? Um, You get a digital version of my book or a hard copy of my book based on the tier you sign up with. So all kinds of benefits. Go check out um, our Patreon on our website. And um, if you want to become a monthly supporter today, amen, let's do it. We need the help. Help us reach people and build the church up. All right. So in four minutes, now three minutes, we're going to jump on a Zoom call. I'll see you guys there if you're watching this in the future. I apologize. You missed it. But God bless you anyway. See you guys in a couple minutes. Bye.